Well, it's good to see you guys. I hope you're well. Hope you enjoyed yesterday. I was just talking to, to Drew Morgan earlier, and I feel like one of the few times since the last couple of months, yesterday felt like a normal day, right? Like I got up, did some stuff around the house, watched a football game, grilled hot dogs and hamburgers, took a nap. Like it was sweet. It was sweet. So hopefully you had a good day as well. Hopefully your team won, uh, or if they lost, they lost with honor. Um, but yeah, we are going to uh, talk about something this morning a little bit more serious than football, um, a little bit more difficult to think about than football, but something I hope that we will see is super important, vital to our lives as Christians and vital to the life of the church. So today we're going to talk about biblical discipline, biblical discipline, how the church is maintained. So you think about... Um, the idea of church discipline. And, and as you're thinking about that, go ahead and take your Bibles and find Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and we'll start in verse 15. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Now, I know that this may be a controversial topic uh, to some. We think about church discipline. Um, it's, it's something that has a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding. It's why over the last few weeks, we've spent a lot of time seeing the biblical pictures of the church the purity of the church, the church membership, the structure of the church, all of these things we need to have an understanding of as a foundation of what these things mean so that we can wade into the waters today of church discipline. So, so I wonder what it is that you think when you think about the idea of church discipline or what, what comes into your mind. You maybe think about people being judgmental or kicking people out of the church, or a church being exclusive where only certain people are welcome to be there. I hope today that we'll see that the biblical discipline of, of church discipline is how the church is maintained as the bride of Christ. It's how God is glorified, and it's how our brothers and sisters are restored to communion with God. And we'll talk about all of those things this morning. So I also hope that we will together come away seeing church discipline not as something to avoid, not as something to begrudge, not as something to uh, want to do away with, but instead we would see church discipline as a gift. It's a gift that God gives us, and it's a responsibility that we steward for one another. So let's go to our text, Matthew 18. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. This is Jesus speaking. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that we need your wisdom and we need your guidance as we think about a very difficult, seemingly controversial, seemingly offensive thing that we find here in the text, that you give the church the process of discipline that ultimately leads to a church making pronouncements on the members of that church. 
So God, I pray that you would help us to come to your word with humility, with an eagerness to learn the truth, and uh, God, with the passion to obey you and to follow you with whatever you command us to do. Lord, help us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning, we're going to look at three things. If you're taking notes, we'll, we'll look at the, the purpose of discipline. We'll look at the, the process of discipline. How do we do it? And we'll look at the posture of discipline. What, what, what kind of attitude should we have when we practice church discipline? But the first thing we'll look at, if you're taking notes, the first point is this. It's the purpose of discipline. What is the purpose of church discipline? Why do we do this? Why do we confront one another with our sins? Why do we go to someone and tell them their faults and try to gain our brother back? What's going on there? Why do we do it? Well, I want to argue that there are three senses, there are three purposes that God gives us for church discipline. The glory of God, the holiness of the body, and the restoration of the sinner. So here in Matthew 18, in the text that we just read, Jesus has given us a process for what we need to call corrective discipline corrective discipline. So someone is going a certain way and they need to be corrected. They need to go into a different direction. So someone is in their sin, they need to repent of their sins. They need to be corrected. This is corrective discipline. And by following God's commands that we see here in Matthew, the words of Jesus, when we follow these commands, we honor the Lord. So while practicing church discipline is sometimes messy, it's sometimes awkward, it's painful and almost all the time it's difficult, it will give glory to God because we are obeying his word. So God has not called us to easy things. Sometimes he calls us to difficult things. But when we follow his word, we honor him, we glorify him. So our love for God and our pursuit of his glory in our own lives is the foundational purpose as to why we practice church discipline. That's key students, that the the reason why we would confront one another with our sins is ultimately because we want God to be glorified. Not because we want to be right, not because we want to exact vengeance on someone who's done us wrong, but because we want God to be worshipped. We want God to be seen as glorious. In the second sense, we practice church discipline for the purpose of maintaining the purity of the church. So you were in Matthew 18. Hold your place in Matthew 18, but find for me Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've already mentioned this verse before. We're going to look at it a little bit more deeply today. While you're turning there, I'll just give you the context that in the Corinthian church, a man was having inappropriate relations with his stepmother. This was a blatant, heinous sin. It was a habitual pattern of sinful living And the church in Corinth thought it was okay. They neglected to confront him on his sin. They tolerated it. It's it's a kind of sinful behavior that not even the pagans, not even the unbelievers in Corinth would have condoned. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is what Paul says about the way that the church in Corinth was handling this brother's sin. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, what Paul is saying is, church, if you allow sin to go unconfronted in your body, it will fester and expand and and contaminate everything. That you will allow these sins to take place, well, it's not going to be long before you allow other sins to take place. And before long, this pure body is no longer pure at all. This holy church is no longer holy at all. In this case, heinous sin and neglect from the church to deal with it was affecting not just that person, it was affecting the whole body. By practicing church discipline, we deal with our sins and strive in the power of the Spirit for holiness. Now, we've heard over and over again, God has called His church to be holy, to be righteous, to be pure in the eyes of the Lord. So we, we want to glorify God. It's the primary purpose. We want to keep and maintain the purity of the church. That's the second purpose. But in the third sense, we practice discipline for the purpose of restoration. We practice discipline because we love our brothers and sisters. So we approach a brother or a sister and we confront them on their sin because we want them to love Christ and enjoy communion with him. We want to see that brother or sister restored to a right relationship with God and others. So like a father who disciplines his children because he cares for them, like if, if I'm, say, I'm out with my dad and I'm playing outside and I run out into a busy street And my dad grabs me by the arm and yanks me back. Now, I would think, man, what in the world is my dad doing? Why is he being so mean to me? That's not what he's doing. Out of great love for me, he is willing to confront me in my rebellion in order to protect me as the cars whiz by. And in the same way, God has given you and me the practice of church discipline so that we might confront our brothers and sisters to keep them from running out into the highway so that we might bring them back into right relationship with God and with us. We see this in both of our texts this morning. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you should be right there. Look at just verse 5, the verse right before. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you need to remove this man from among you from thinking that he is okay in his sin so that he might repent, so that he might be brought back into relationship with God, so that he might be brought back into communion with the body. And we'll get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where we actually see this played out. Or Matthew 18, we just read that text. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Another translation says you have won your brother. So why do we do this? Why do we practice church discipline? Because we want fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We want right relationship. We also see this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is if if a man is caught... If one of you is caught in sin and any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him. That's the, that's the, the purpose of discipline, to restore our brothers and sisters. 
Not to make them feel bad, not to harm them, not to put shame on them, not to condemn them, to restore them. That's the purpose of discipline. So we practice church discipline, not to be mean, not to be haughty or holier than thou, or to get revenge or to act out of anger, but because we love God, because we love the church, because we love one another. We want to glorify the Lord. We want to live holy lives as the body of Christ. And we want to restore our brothers and sisters to communion with God. Now, I'm using that word communion in a, very intentionally. You and I as Christians, if we have repented of our sins and believe in Jesus for salvation, we have union with Christ. We are united to him by faith once and for all. That is a done deal. There is nothing you can do to remove that. Right? This is John chapter 6. If I have you in my hand, there is no one that can take you out. This is Romans 8. Right, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is the good news of the gospel that you can't mess this up because God is holding on to you. That's your union with Christ. But as Christians, you and I enjoy day in and day out communion with Christ. This is the practical, experiential relationship that you and I enjoy with our Lord. And that, because of our sin, can be squandered, can be given up, can be abandoned, can be uh, emaciated, or it can be fed and it can progress and and it become more healthy and more strong. So we want to restore our brothers through church discipline not so that their union with Christ is affected. Their union with Christ is between them and the Lord, but their communion with God is in danger. And we want to restore them to the Lord. So that's the purpose of discipline, because we want to worship and glorify God, because we want a holy church, and because we want brothers and sisters to enjoy fellowship and communion with God and one another. And that takes us to the second point. So now that we know the purpose of discipline, what's the process? How do we do this? The basic pattern we find in Matthew 18, it's the text that we've read. But let's be clear, what we're talking about here, like I said before, is corrective discipline. This is corrective discipline. It's a reaction to a wrong that has been committed. There's also another kind of practice called formative discipline. Formative discipline. This is a proactive kind of discipline that seeks to cultivate godliness in us. So, When you sit under preaching, like right now, or in just a little while when you sit under Brother Al, you are in discipline. You are being formed through the discipline of listening to preaching. When you pray, when you pray together, when you study the Word, when you memorize Scripture, you are being formed by your disciplines. So students, we are always in some kind of discipline if we are aware of it. These are forms of formative discipline. We need to see that the idea of discipline is not bad. It's good. It's a good thing. It's for our holiness. It's for our enjoyment. It's for the the joy of the Lord that he gives us. But back to corrective discipline, Matthew 18. What's the process? First, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Jesus says that if someone sins against you, the first thing that you ought to do is to go to that person. 
It's a step that I fear we skip way too often. We would rather run to other people when someone sins against us rather than going to that person. But that's not what the text says. The text says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him alone. This is discipline. It's not when you get to the church part of it that it becomes church discipline. This is church discipline. Now, this is not a license for you and me to become these trigger-happy, holier-than-thou Christians who are just ready and willing to confront one another all the time. Right? So if somebody does something to you, or somebody says a word that was unkind, or if somebody overlooks you for some reason, or says something that you find offensive, it's not a license for you to just automatically react with this confrontation. Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. This process of church discipline has in mind either a clearly deliberate sin, Somebody has clearly, intentionally sinned against you, or it is a pattern of sinful behavior that is not stopping. It's not this person said an unkind word to me, or I saw them say an unkind word to somebody else, so I have to just go to them and confront them right now. Now, if it's the 30th time you've heard it, well, then it's a different story. This is not a license for us to just constantly be on one another's case. No, this is an opportunity for us to show love to bear one another's sins. But we don't even do that, right? We don't go to one another alone. We don't go between you and him alone and tell him his fault. Why? Why do we go to other people instead of the one who has sinned against us? I have a couple of ideas. I'm sure there are many more. First, it's fear of man. It's fear of man. We don't want to be that person. But we want to be able to talk about it with somebody else. So we don't want to be the person that's always getting on somebody's case. We don't want to be the confrontational person, but we want to be able to talk about it and get encouraged and be agreed with and be affirmed. But this is how so many issues among Christians grow and fester and become way, way bigger than they ought to be. Another reason why is because we like to be the victim if we're honest, we want someone to encourage us and affirm us when, when something has been done wrong to us. We like the affirmation. You're right. He shouldn't have said that to you. She should not have done that. You're absolutely right. You're right in this instance. We like the encouragement, but we're getting encouragement at someone else's expense. Another reason is lack of love. Remember, the reason why we practice church discipline is because we love our brothers and sisters and we want them to enjoy fellowship. And so when we don't confront someone in their sin, and if we don't see that as a loving thing to do, we won't do it. We want to restore our brother to right relationship with Jesus and with us. Failing to confront our brothers and sisters in their sin is leaving them to continue in their sin, which is about as unloving a thing we can do. We may have legitimate reasons for not going to someone alone. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were sinned against in a way that it would not be safe for you or right for you to confront that person alone. So don't hear this text by saying, well, I have to put myself in this really risky or dangerous situation in order to confront 
this person in sin. That's not what this text is saying. This text is a principle. You may have a legitimate reason for not approaching that person alone. That's why there are leaders and pastors who can help. But there is a normal pattern of discipline, and it begins right here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've won your brother. You've gained him. Restoration has taken place. The gospel can be applied to each of your lives, that you can forgive, that they can repent, and that the gospel can be proclaimed to the whole world. Christ is honored and the world notices that something unnatural has taken place. People have humbled themselves out of love for one another. But if he does not listen, if she does not listen, we go to the next step. Take one or two others along with you so that a credible charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, Jesus says. This is rooted in Israelite and ancient culture. Credible evidence will come from multiple sources. So it's not that this person is, in my opinion, arrogant and a bully. It's also the opinion of my three friends who were also bullied by him. It's not something that I just made up. It's something that other people have witnessed. I wasn't the only one who heard the gossip. So did she, and so did she. It also provides a mediator or two who can help the one who sinned and the one who was sinned against be reconciled. So maybe you get into a discussion with that person who has sinned against you and you just cannot come to terms with one another. Maybe you need somebody else who loves the both of you to come into that conversation so that mediation can take place, so that reconciliation can take place. Now, if they don't listen to the two or three, the next step is to tell it to the church. This may be when pastoral leadership is involved. It may mean that the whole church be made aware of a person's unrepentant sin. Let's say there's a person in our church who is a sketchy businessman and he has swindled people out of their money and he is unrepentantly doing so, and he's a member of this church. Well, the whole church at this point, after these processes of, of discipline need have taken place, if he's still unrepentant, the whole church, maybe in wisdom, is to be made aware. Here is a man among us who is unrepentant in his sin, who is taking advantage of people. Join us as we pray for him and call him to repent. Throughout all of this process, Believers plead for repentance and restoration. Now, let me just stop here and say that these steps of discipline are not necessarily used once and then moved on with. And they're not necessarily immediately followed by the next step. So maybe you go to a brother who sinned against you. You have a conversation with them and he doesn't listen to you. And maybe you think, I just need to talk to, we need to talk, to, we need to talk again. So you have lunch with him the next week. You have another conversation with him. That's fine. That's, that's, that's wise. That's giving your brother time for the spirit to, to work in his life. Maybe two or three others come along with you the next time. And you decide that we're going to meet a couple of times before we decide to take it to the pastors. Maybe it goes before the church and the church says, brother, we're going to give you a month to, to get your house in order, to, to change your ways, to change your practices, to come to repentance, to, to, to understand the reality of your sin. Even in our practice of discipline, we want to show grace. But we want to be faithful to uphold God's holiness and His righteousness and the righteousness of the church. 
If a person continues in their unrepentant sin after the church as a whole has called them to repentance, then, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, this person is no longer to be recognized as a member of that church. This is called excommunication. So just think the word communication with EX in front of it, excommunication. That that person is no longer seen, is no longer recognized as a member of this body of believers. Now, excommunication is not an irreconcilable state. It's not as though we are saying to that person, you are condemned to hell, you're not a Christian, you can't come back here, good riddance. That's not what excommunication is saying. It's not the end of the matter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, so find that with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul picks up where he left off in 1 Corinthians 5. In the first letter, he tells the church to excommunicate this man, to remove him from your fellowship, to remove him from your church so that he might be restored, so that he might repent. But find 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and confront and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, what Paul is saying in that text is that this person is repentant. What seems to have happened is this person is repentant and the church is not restoring him. They're saying, no, 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 like we we can't forgive you because of what you've done. Paul told us to excommunicate you and that's what we're doing. And now Paul is saying, look, he's repented. The punishment has been enough. Reaffirm your love for him. Restore him to your fellowship. Excommunication is a pronouncement from the body of Christ that unrepentant sinners cannot be affirmed as believers. This is vitally important. Excommunication is the pronouncement that the church cannot affirm believers who continue in unrepentant sin. So if you live your life and you struggle with sin, say you struggle with pride or anger or lust or whatever it is, and you find yourself hating your sin and and falling back to the Lord and saying, God, I want to be rid of this temptation. I want to be rid of this sin. I hate my sin. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you. I want to glorify you with my life, not struggle with these sins anymore. That is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is somebody who says, yes, I'm a Christian, and I find no issue with running away from God towards the things that he hates. Unrepentant sin. Sinning in a way that I don't think there's anything wrong with. That's unrepentant sin. And that is not compatible with someone who has the Spirit of God living in them. It's not compatible with somebody who has been given a new heart. So excommunication does not have the the power of saying this person is a Christian or not a Christian. 
The church doesn't have that kind of authority to say, you are not saved. But it is a pronouncement that the church says to that person, you may be saved, you may not be, but we cannot tell. And we cannot affirm that you are. And because we cannot affirm that you are a believer, we cannot have you as a member of this body until you live a life that is in keeping with repentance. It is God's right to save or condemn. But we have the responsibility to recognize and uphold the righteousness of God and the purity of the church. And if someone is in unrepentant sin, they stand in danger of revealing that their faith is not built on the rock, it's built on sand. If I say I'm a Christian and I live my life in huge rebellion and I live my life in unrepentant sin over and over, what I am revealing is that my heart does not know Christ. My heart just wants the stuff that Christ can give me. Excommunication is the strongest warning the church can give to a person so that they might turn back to Christ and away from their sin before it's eternally too late. And if that person repents through the warnings of the church, the church should readily restore and happily bring that man or woman back into fellowship. God will be pleased, the church will be maintained, and a brother or sister is restored. All of the purposes of the church will come to pass. Now, in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, those steps, going to them alone, taking two or three others along with you, telling it to the church, those steps are skipped, right? Paul just says, look, you have this person among you, take him out of your fellowship. Remove him from your membership. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a kind of urgent and immediate action that's to be reserved for severe, heinous, willful sin that would be totally uncharacteristic of a believer, But for the vast majority of our life, the pattern of biblical church discipline is what we find in Matthew 18. That's the process of discipline. And and Lord willing, 99 times out of 100, 99.99% of the time, it never makes it to the church. Why? Because we are believers. And when we are confronted with our sin, the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin and we want to be holy and live godly lives. And so all it would take for the vast majority of us is to have a brother or sister confront us and say, brother, I see this in you and I'm concerned. I love you and I want you to follow Jesus with everything you have and I want you to enjoy all of the blessings that he offers us. But brother, I keep seeing you in this pattern of disobedience. And I'm there to come alongside you to help you if there's a way that I can, but I just, I feel a concern for you that you need to know that your sin is known, it's seen. For many of us, that would be enough. It would be enough for us to realize, yeah, you're right. I'm walking away from the Lord in these areas and I need to turn from my sin back to Christ. So now that we know the purpose of discipline and the process of discipline, very quickly, the last point, just as a conclusion, is the posture of discipline. How do we do this? With, with what kind of heart do we do this? How, how do we approach one another? I think the Bible tells us with a posture of humility. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read these texts. 
Let the scripture speak for itself and then I'll pray. It's Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Paul is speaking about the role of love among believers in the church. Although this is a passage that is often read at weddings, totally great. Paul's intention is to talk about how believers in the church ought to live with one another. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then last but not least, in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8, Peter writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Students, God has given us a gift with church discipline, with biblical discipline, that we would love one another enough to go to them in a spirit of gentleness, full of love, and call them back to fellowship with Jesus. Call them back to fellowship with us. That we would love them enough to be honest with them, not to go around their back and speak about them to other people, but to go to them. That we love the church enough to have hard conversations so that its holiness might be maintained. And that we love God enough that we would be in awkward situations, messy conversations, so that his name might be glorified among his people. That's how the church is maintained. This is biblical discipline. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we just spend a couple of minutes decompressing from this message, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the beautiful, wonderful gift that you have given the church in the process of church discipline. God, I pray that we would all see ourselves as responsible to to love one another well, to confront one another if we have to, to receive confrontation when we need it. God, I pray that your people would be marked by humility, gentleness, love, and a sense of awe before you and before your word, that we would want to keep your word more than anything, that we would want your name to be honored and glorified more than our relationships, more than our status, more than our comfort. So Lord, help us. Help us to worship you rightly in this case. Help us to maintain the purity of the church and help us to restore our brothers and sisters. 
God, help us to walk in your ways, to love you, to worship and follow you after you together as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.